Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. <laughs> wow, what a day. What a day. It was awesome uh, being out there, seeing all you, hearing the stories, having lunch. Uh, it was fantastic. And uh, I think this can become more and more important for us as a church as we move into this new era that our nation is in, that we're out there being the hands and feet of Jesus. And honestly, my vision is that these big days just become uh, something that shapes our hearts, something we do much more all the time. And uh, there's something about doing it together in a big way that kind of changes your mindset of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're looking forward to that. But um, anyway, we're going to go into uh, our time of teaching today. And we're doing uh, this brand new series, just a couple-week series. And so inside your program uh, is a message note sheet. I know some of you are going to be shocked we can do a series in two weeks. Uh, that you're thinking like, <laughs> two years maybe? Two months, that's pushing it. Two weeks, are you serious? Uh, who, who took our pastor? Um, but uh, anyway, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your presence, in your place, under your leadership. And at such a time as this, God, that you've said in your word in Acts 17 that you decide uh, who lives where, when. Throughout history, you set the boundaries of nations, um, you set our boundaries, and you've done it in such a way that we could seek and know you. Um, And so, God, it's it's no accident that we're followers of yours, we're living in this time, this place, the life of our nation at this time. God, we're thankful to be here. We're thankful you've called on us, you've chosen us to be lights in a dark place in the midst of an increasingly dark time. And so, God, we don't take that for granted. We, we take it as a high and holy calling. And as we begin to launch in this week, next week, and talk about what does it look like to shine in the midst of an incredibly, increasingly dark culture, we pray that you give us courage, you give us grace, you give us wisdom. I pray you'd give me uh, clarity as I share the things that you put on my heart, and you'd speak spontaneously in ways that you want to speak. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today in the spring of 1787. Three and a half years since the end of a war that no one thought we could win. It was incredible. A ragtag group of people trying to stand up to the greatest superpower on the earth at that time, outmanned, outgunned out-trained, and yet miracle of miracles to the shock of the world. This small nation made of, of 13 separate states beat the greatest superpower in the world. But now it's three and a half years later, and things aren't working out so well. Little did they know that when they're starting this venture that the biggest challenge would not necessarily be just winning the war, it was creating a nation. No one had ever done this. No one had ever created a nation from scratch. And they started with these articles of confederation, but it just wasn't working. Thirteen separate states, really skeptical of a large federal-type government because it's where they come from that was so oppressive. So they were, they were split. They had different political philosophies. They had different regional interests. And this fragile union was in danger of coming apart before the nation hardly got started. And so in May of 1787, 
they came together, 55 delegates from 13 states, to see if they could form a more perfect union, if there was a way that they could establish some sort of constitution that would tie them together in a unified whole that could last over time. It was one of the most ambitious endeavors ever taken in the history of the world. They were brilliant men. They were men like George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, some of the best political minds in human history together at one time. And yet it wasn't going well. Four or five weeks in, it was about to come undone. It was beginning to look undoable. The the philosophical and practical differences were just too great. And this young nation that was only three and a half years old was about to come undone. And that's when he got up. 81 years old. Oldest delegate there. And he began to speak. Well, today, we are kicking off a new series, two-week series, like I say, unbelievable. We'll see if that really is true, if it really lasts. Um, But uh, it's called The Culture Crisis, Um, and uh, would you agree with me, our culture is in crisis right now, that we, uh, I think especially as followers of Jesus, we can see this. Some of the things going on in our culture are hard to believe. Did you ever think you would live to see some of the things that are happening today? Uh, Many cultural observers, especially astute Christ followers, would suggest that we are at a cultural tipping point. Uh, Several weeks ago, you know that, uh, two or three weeks ago, some of you know that um, I flew back to North Carolina to go to a conference. It was something that I just came, uh, came across like a week or two before it happened. It was last minute. Normally I hear about these things six, eight months in advance. I never heard of this. I don't know if they put it together late or what. But as you know, for about two months, I've been feeling that God had been putting this series on my heart that I needed to come together, bring us together as a church and think about where we're going and prepare us for what's coming. And, uh, and this conference was addressing exactly the issues that I wanted to talk about. And uh, and it was with some leading minds, some leading thinkers of our nation, uh, Christ-following uh, uh, thinkers. And the, nation, the, 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 uh, this, the conference was called Centered and Sent, and it was in North Carolina. And so last minute, I just felt like God one morning, Sunday morning, got up, I went in, I, I told Lynn, you know that crazy conference I told you I couldn't go to because it's too crazy, I didn't have time. Uh, I felt like God's telling me to go. And she says, okay, have a good time. So... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I came in, and between services that Sunday, after I taught the seven, at the 9 o'clock, I went in and booked a flight uh, between services and, uh, and headed back. And uh, when I went on that website, when I first got the email about it, um, this is how they were advertising it. There in your note sheet, I put the website uh, promo, and uh, here's what it said. It said, it's election season. North America has reached a cultural tipping point. As society transitions into post-Christendom, the church finds itself increasingly at odds with majority culture. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, history testifies that the gospel is always clear in an age when it's not culturally assumed. The early church thrived 
in a non-Christian world because she was both culturally relevant and radically distinct. We believe the church can do the same thing today. And I would agree with that. I I believe that we are heading into increasingly a post-Christian culture that's going to provide us with new uh, challenges. I believe we're at a cultural tipping point. Um, I believe we're heading into an increasingly hostile uh, culture where we're, we're, as followers of Jesus, we're going to be minority culture uh, as opposed to what's often been in the past, even kind of a majority culture in the sense of at least cultural Christianity that's kind of going away now. Um, but I also believe that, is, that in times of darkness, some of these, these are some of the times of our greatest opportunity. But the reality is, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to be ready for this storm that's coming, uh, we got to get ready now. You know, it's like it's, it's too late to, uh, to build the, the storm shelter late. Like, we're getting to get ready now. And so um, what I want to do is this week and next week talk about what does it look like for us to get ready? What are some steps that we need to be taking as followers of Jesus to prepare for the future, regardless of what happens this week? Because this week and the elections this week and the candidates we have, catch us, are more a reflection of our culture than the problem of the culture. The reason we have the candidates we have is they're a reflection of our nation. These are the two candidates for president we have chosen as a nation. We had other options. We chose them. I believe that a nation gets the candidates they deserve. And the fact that we have these two candidates is a reflection of the people that put them in place. And so if we're gonna be if we're gonna get ready, it needs to be now. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the culture crisis first steps. And what I wanted to do to today is just give the first two steps. And then next week we'll see what happens this week. And I'll come back to the next steps. So I'm not announcing how many steps there are right now. (laughs) We may need more or less. We're still going to need a lot of steps, uh, regardless of what happens. So number one, the first step is to know the times. Uh, As followers of Jesus, that we have to understand the times we live in. We have to know why we are experiencing what we're experiencing, where it came from, what's going. We need to be aware of what's happening and why it's happening. Um, Jesus said when he was there, when he came on the scene, one of the things he said is he said, hey, you know, you guys are really good at like uh, telling the weather. Like, you know, the signs of the weather. Like you you don't have, you know, apps on your phones yet. Uh, You don't have newscasters yet, but you're pretty good. You can look at the sky in the morning or night and kind of predict a little bit of forecasting and probably better than the newscasters, right? The only people that can be wrong most of the time and keep their jobs. But uh, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, look at Matthew 16. This is what Jesus said. He said, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. So he said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. You cannot interpret the signs of the times. So Jesus said, something is happening amazing right here, right now in your generation, and you're missing it. 
And as followers of Jesus, I think it's so important that we become students of the times, that we know the times, that we recognize where our culture is, how can we shine our light if we don't understand where we are as a culture. Uh, And it's particularly important right now because using Jesus' analogy, um, it's important that we're reading the weather signs because I believe a storm is coming. Um, a lot of you know that one of my favorite novels, favorite fiction literature, is Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Yeah, all right, great. Good. I'm among friends. Good. The rest of you are going like, no, oh, you weirdo. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, look, I'm not as bad as Dre. All right. So, uh, <laughs> At least I'm not into marble. You know, whatever. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, so, um, I'm so glad that I get to be up here so much more than he does because I, I can get away with so much more. He, he's got to wait like four weeks to get back at me. It's not, um, he's like, yeah, I changed that date. Sorry. Uh, but uh, if you've never read Lord of the Rings or never seen the movie, the, you know, the basic plot line is pretty simple is that there's an evil power arising in the distant land of Mordor. It's a dark power, and it's spreading rapidly over Middle-earth, and wherever it goes, it's bringing death and destruction. And uh, far away, uh, in a distant land, there's a simple quiet land called the Shire, where these little people live that are called hobbits, right? And here's the thing. The hobbits are pretty unaware of anything happening in the larger world. Like a storm is coming their way, they don't, not only do they not know it's coming their way, they wouldn't really care if it were. They kind of have an attitude of like, we don't want to know. We don't, we don't care about tales of distant land. We just want to kind of be in our shire, in our safe little shire, right? But the reality is, unless something big happens in Middle Earth soon, the shire as they know it's going to go away. And I think that's a great analogy for our culture right now. It's a great picture that uh, I believe that a storm is coming. Um, And as followers of Jesus, that we need to be ready for this storm with courage and confidence. And so we need to be preparing now. Uh, Now, I got to tell you something. that The reality is this storm is not um, taking me by surprise. And this is something that I've been seeing coming for a long time. Uh, I remember talking to Lynn about this back in the 1980s, that this is where we're going. This is where it's going to happen. Um, that uh, as a student of the word, as a follower of Jesus, as a student of history, um, that we are reaping what we're sowing right now as a nation. And it's really not that hard to predict if you know history, if you know the word, uh, if, you, if you're a student of that, that it comes with, the reality is, and, and here's like, you know, here's the big picture, like where we are, is that as a nation, as a culture, over the last 50 years, we have increasingly bought into what we call in philosophy a materialist mindset, a materialist worldview. Now, uh, that doesn't mean like we're materialistic, right? We're, we're that too. But um, when you talk about a materialist worldview, what, what you believe is that all the cosmos is a result of billions of years of random accidents. And when you believe that, what people don't often understand is there are repercussions for believing. Like worldviews don't stay put, they lead somewhere. 
And, and the reality is, if you believe that all of life is the result of random chance, that where it leads is what it means is that ultimately there is no source of right and wrong. There's no standard. And at first, that may be feel very liberating, especially in a culture like ours that, that primarily means we can do whatever we want sexually. If there's no right and wrong, I can do whatever I want. But what we don't realize is that when there is no creator and there is no right and wrong, that it eventually leads to mass confusion and what it leads to is the people in power have the right to define right and wrong. Right and wrong becomes a moving target. And that's what's happening in our culture right now for 50 years we have increasingly, as it's moved down from the intelligentsia, down into our universities, down into our educational system, into our media, what has happened is we have rejected the truth of God that's been revealed in creation and conscience, and we find ourselves in a place there is no rooted anchor, there is no solid stability of anything that's true. And that is the mark of postmodern thought. Postmodern thought says that there is no such thing as absolute truth, that tr- truth, uh, truth claims are artificial structures made up by people in power to further their agenda. Therefore, when the power changes, you change the structure in order to achieve your goals. Now, once you understand that, then our culture makes perfect sense, that we are reaping what we've sown. Now, one of my favorite passages in the Bible that talks about this is Romans chapter 1 and 2. And we don't have time today to go through it point by point. Um, In my earlier drafts, I did, but this is honestly, this is one of those messages so much you could could say. So I'm just going to summarize it for you, all right? You can go back later. The references are on your note note sheet. But this is what Paul says. Romans 1 and 2 is basically a big picture overview of the spiritual story, the history of the human race. And here's what Paul says. What the Apostle Paul says is that the spiritual story of the human race is one of rebellion. And he says the core sin of the human race, from culture to culture, person to person, we all do this, is that we reject the truth about God that's been revealed in creation. The, the beauty, the complexity, the brilliance, the power, and so on. We reject the truth of God that is clearly revealed in creation. We create gods in our own image, different gods in different eras, that allow us to do whatever we want because they're like us. And we reject the truth about ourselves that's revealed in the human conscience. We sometimes call natural law, moral law. That as you, as you study cultures, it's very consistent you know, from religion to religion, this kind of, this basic moral law, we reject the truth about God revealed in the creation, we reject the truth about ourselves who are created in the image of God to be like that God that's revealed to us in our conscience. And the end result is confusion at every level. And so Paul says, if you choose to embrace the lie, it will lead you to a dead end street. And he said, so what happens is when a culture chooses to embrace the lie, it leads first to spiritual confusion about who God is, 
Secondly, to sexual confusion about who we are. And third, to social confusion to where the whole society unravels. And Paul says that the end result of this is what I call a moral inversion. Where right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right. And Paul puts it this way, proclaiming themselves to be wise... They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they became fools. And so in Isaiah's day, explaining the same dynamics, because the same dynamics, whatever culture you're in that goes down this path, he puts it like this there in your note sheet in Isaiah 5. He says, woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Now, here's what happens. In any culture that does this, rejects the truth about God, revealed in creation and conscience, it begins a downward spiral, and the more you reject the truth, the farther you go, the darker it gets. This is the ultimate example of the dimmer switch principle. Reject the truth, and you go in the darkness. The confusion will get greater and greater, and the speed of change of confusion will pick up. And that's what we're experiencing in our culture right now. Uh, And it's not just in spiritual confusion. You look at our confusion today of people basically just making up whatever we want to believe about God and then saying, you know, we just kind of do like a smorgasbord God. Take a little Eastern religion, take a little Oprah, take a little bit of Buddhism, we'll take a little bit of Hinduism, we'll mix a little Christianity, we'll throw in heaven, so we all, and right, we just mix our own thing. And so not only is there spiritual confusion, hey, all paths lead to the same place, are you kidding me? They're all diametrically opposed, right? Like that doesn't even make sense. Proclaiming to be wise, you become a fool. Not only does it lead to spiritual confusion, it leads to sexual confusion. And Paul talks specifically about gender confusion in our sexual lives. And then it leads to social confusion, a breakdown of of the relationships of society to where hatred and splits and divides become the norm. And it's exactly what we're seeing in our culture right now. But not only is that, But it begins, when you deny the truth about who God is, you lose the truth about who you are. And this is having huge implications. We have not even begun to see. Do you know this, that in the Roman Empire, in the Greek and Roman Empire, infanticide was a way of life. You had a baby. If you didn't want the baby, usually probably because a girl, you would just put her out on the side of the road You put her in a trash heap, she's either going to die or she's going to be raised as a slave for slavery. That was normal. Why did it change? It changed because Christianity. Because Christianity came along and said, no, every person is created in the image of God and every person has inalienable rights and every person is valuable. And it doesn't matter if you're disabled or black or white or brown or yellow or rich or poor, that all people are created in the image of God and therefore have value and life matters. 
But catch this, we are living on borrowed time. The values that we take as enlightened, of course, all modern people, we don't realize where we got those from. We got those, we didn't come up with those on our own. We didn't get those from Rome or Greece. We got it from Jesus and the Bible. And here's what's happening. As you reject the truth about who God is, you will lose even the value of human life. We are seeing this in our culture today as the difference between the value of animals and human beings is getting lost. We are more concerned about dolphins and whales than about killing babies. We're more concerned about gorillas than babies. And it makes perfect sense. Because if you reject the truth about who you are, then we are no longer special. We are just an accident. We are just a more evolved species and less evolved species. Who's to say one's more invaluable than another? It's just an all point of view. If you're the dolphin, you think you're the most important. And this is not, we're not just kidding around here. Let me tell you, one of the most famous moral philosophers in the world is a man named Peter Singer from Princeton University. And in one of the most more recent books a few years ago, Philip Yancey talks about this loss of human identity that's coming as a result of our culture. And look what he says there on your note sheet. Fine, there, I know there's a couple quotes, so <laughs> see if you can find one. The one by Philip Yancey, he says, candid atheists, in other words, honest atheists, people that have a materialist worldview, they're atheists, um, and they're honest about it. In other words, they're consistent atheists. Most atheists are not consistent, not because they're bad people, just because it's impossible to be consistent with the way God's made us. It's like it's atheism as anti-human, right? And so if you believe in atheism, there's no ultimate meaning in life if you're, if you're honest about it. And as human beings created in the image of God, we crave meaning. And so that's why atheists will be inconsistent. And so what he's saying here, he's saying candid atheists, and there are some that are very candid and very honest. The candid atheists agree that any discussion of human or animal rights is pointless, Remember, what, because we believe that we have been endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. That's based in a Christian worldview. He says, candid atheists would be, they would admit that there's any talking of rights in a random universe is ridiculous. There's no such thing as rights or wrongs. And he said, so they would agree that, uh, with that. He said, um, he said uh, it's pointless and which has a huge impact on how we view ourselves and the world. And he's going to quote a major animal rights leader, and she says, there is really no rational reason, and by the way, she is absolutely correct given a materialist worldview. There is really no rational reason for saying a human being has special rights, says Ingrid Newkirk, co-founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. And that is absolutely true given a materialist worldview. And so Yancey says, serious ethicists now argue that an animal's rights should sometimes take precedence over a human's. 
Princeton's, this is Princeton University, Ivy League. Princeton University's Peter Singer suggests that an adult chimpanzee may have more value than a human infant, especially a defective child. Infanticide should take place as soon as possible after birth. And catch this, I would say that is illogical. There is no reason. If, if there's mature world, there's no reason not to do infanticide. There's no reason not to do it at any age. As soon as possible after birth, he says, though it would be acceptable to kill one-year-olds with physical or mental disabilities. This proposal comes from a man the New Yorker magazine calls the most influential living philosopher. Men and women, this is, this is the reality. When you reject the truth that there is a creator, there is no longer any absolute standard of right and wrong. And that may seem like not a big deal to you, like relativism is the norm in our culture, and everyone thinks that's pretty good, but most people have never thought it out. It is this philosophy that even goes back to Friedrich Nietzsche. It's this philosophy that allowed Hitler to do what Hitler did. It was completely consistent. It's why in World War II, they began euthanizing disabled people, thousands and thousands. It's why they could kill the Jews. It's why they would kill Poles and gypsies and gays and feel morally justified. This is why Stalin could do what Stalin did. A materialist worldview will eventually lead to totalitarian thinking because there is no ultimate value system Value systems are arbitrary and made up by those in power. And that is why in our culture right now, the elites do not care about what the Constitution means. They only care about what they can make it say. Because there is no conviction about ultimate truth or ultimate value. Now, what does that mean for us then? Well, what it means for us as followers of Jesus that we believe in a creator and we believe in what philosophers would call moral law, that some things are right and some things are wrong and they're written on the human heart, let alone, let's leave scripture out, they're written on the human heart. And what this means is that as followers of Jesus, we are going to be coming increasingly on a collision course with majority culture. And this is why almost every week and sometimes many times a week, you are seeing in our culture right now the unthinkable happen where the courts are siding time and time again with this uh, against Christ followers and our values. Things that would be unthinkable to the founders of the Constitution, are unthinkable even 10 or 20 years ago that there's not talking of freedom of rights for people who disagree. They're talking about imposing a particular system, which is what a totalitarian government does. So are you with me here? This is where we are, and I, I want to say a couple things really clearly. This does not mean we hate our enemies. This is, does not mean that we start attacking 
people who hold this position. What, we love them. What we're called to do, though, is know the times. We have to understand what we're up against, that what we're experiencing right now as a culture is not an accident. It's not just a happenstance. This is what happens when a culture rejects the truth about a creator and conscience, is they lose their way, and they go down increasingly into spiritual, sexual, and social confusion, to where right becomes wrong, and wrong becomes right, and if you don't believe me, study World War II and Germany, and how that happened. All right. So that's where we are. So how do we respond then? I, I believe um, unless something changes uh, soon at, at probably like a high court level, okay, unless that changes me soon, that I see this storm clouds of Mordor coming. And what I see is the cost of following Jesus is about to go up. Now, here's what I've been telling you this for the last year in our series in Acts. And we're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. And so we have got to get ready for this. We are not used to this. We are used to being part of majority culture. And by that, I don't mean that everyone is a Christian, but I mean if you take a poll, people would check Christian. And that meant that the Christian worldview values to a large degree were held. What's happening is not so much that there are less Bible-believing Christians in America. What's happening is the people that are cultural Christians, never really believed anyway, but would check the box. They're the ones that are shifting. And that's what's happening, why suddenly there's such a shift. And so if that's happening, then the question is, how do we as followers of Jesus prepare? You know, in Lord of the Rings, it wasn't the end of the story. There was a band of brothers. It was elves and kings and wizards and hobbits. And there was a calling on their life to march to Mordor. How do we march to Mordor? How do we rise up? How do we listen to our king? How do we respond with to the challenges coming with courage and confidence and march into the storm. That's the question, right? So here we go. This one point for today, and the first one is the most important one. We embrace repentance. Now, I need to break this down because if if the problem in Romans 1 is rebellion against the creator, rebellion against the truth, if that's the problem, if the problem is rebellion, the solution is what? Good, three of you. Yeah, if the problem is rebellion, the solution is repentance, right? Like we have to come under the leadership of the creator again. We have to come under his moral law again. We have to define right as right and wrong as wrong. We can't switch the labels, right? When you switch the labels, you take the poison label, you switch the label, it doesn't matter what, to say, what, your, what the label says. If you're drinking the wrong stuff, you're going to die. And that's what's going on in our culture. So we need to embrace repentance. Can, can you hear me this? The solution is not political. 
The solution is not education. The solution is not economic. Those all play a part. But the solution is spiritual. And unless there is a deep repentance in the heart of our nation, this downward spiral will continue. And here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I'm not holding my breath for our nation. Here's what I want to challenge you. If our nation is going to repent, we have to lead the way. When I talk about embracing repentance, I'm talking about us as the church of Jesus embracing repentance. See, I believe that Jesus wants his church to be a conduit to culture for healing, for blessing, for change. We are the light of the world. We're the ones that show the way. We are the salt of the earth. We're the ones that stop decay. If the church is not being the light, and if the church is not being the salt, culture doesn't have a chance. The solution is not in culture. The solution is in the church of Jesus Christ. We are the hope of the world. And the reality is the church in America, for the most part, has done a lousy job. We have not been the light of the world. We have not been the salt of the earth. We have been just like the world. We have bowed down at the same idols our culture bows down. We bow down to power. We bow down to sex. We bow down to money. We bow down to comfort. We bow down to popularity. You look at the church in America, we have not been the church of Jesus Christ. We have embraced our political party's values more than the values of Jesus Christ. We have have embraced the values of our nation more than the values of Jesus Christ. We have wrapped Jesus in the flag way too many times as if being a good Christian and America are the same thing. Are you serious? You look at this culture, the most materialistic culture in the history of the world. That is not Jesus. This culture is not taking care of the poor. That is not Jesus. This culture is not standing against racism. That's not Jesus. This culture is not standing for justice. It's not Jesus. We cannot say... We cannot wrap Jesus in our political party. Both political parties are so screwed up, there's no hope in them. As followers of Jesus, we need to start following Jesus, and it starts with us. It starts with laying down our lives. It starts with bending the knee. It starts with stop with the false gospel. You can believe in Jesus as Savior and not believe in Jesus as Lord. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. He is one person. If you're going to follow him, you follow the real deal. You don't pick and choose and split him apart. So we have preached salvation without repentance We have preached following Jesus without discipleship. And the church in America is weak. It's anemic. We are not passionate about Jesus. We're passionate about everything else. And then we wonder why America is like it is. 
if followers of Jesus would rise up and pursue him with a single heart, this country would be changed. Amen. You know, as I was preparing for this, and none of what I just said was part of that. <laughs> you know, a couple of people said, well, how's the message coming? And I said, it's one of those messages, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. I, I just like, I just want to see. Um, but as I was preparing for this, this is one thing I did come to me was um, Jesus' message to the church in Revelation that we know as the church of Laodicea. And I know many of you are probably familiar, but I want you to look at this with fresh eyes. Um, this is a message, it's a letter from Jesus. I think of it almost like an email. It's kind of so short, you know, but, but he says, he's writing to a church, and I want you to catch it. This is a church, all right? The church at Laodicea. And not to culture at large, some of the world, it's to the church. And he says, because you are lukewarm and there's areas around Laodicea, if I remember right, that, that were famous for their cool waters and for their hot springs. Laodicea got neither. It got mixed in the middle, so the water came lukewarm. So it's kind of like speaking their language. And he said, because you're lukewarm, and I don't know about you, but I hate lukewarm things. Like, like that's why I want my mochas at 195. I want them scalding, you know? Um, and, and I love cold things, but you know, like lukewarm, that's not so good. And uh, Jesus and I are on the same page with this, but uh, I'm sure he'd order his mochas really hot. But anyway, uh, because you're lukewarm and you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I want you to catch that. He's talking to a church we would say, you gag me. It's really funny because sometimes I hear pastors, preachers say, oh, when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you as his sin. God looks at you, oh, he sees Jesus, you're perfect. It's like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Uh, and seriously, I mean, we're all forgiven, I get that, but he's a realist. He sees things the way they are. If you don't believe it, look what he says next. He says, you say, so he says, this is your self-perception as a church. He said, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. I, I'm good. We're good. Jesus and I, we're good. I mean, this is often the church in America. Like, we're good. Oh, Jesus and me, my buddy, you know. He says, but you don't realize, here's the reality. Now, here's some words for you from Jesus. You're wretched. You're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You, you can't even see. You're naked. He said, so I counsel you. So Jesus is coming not to condemn, but to counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, salve to put in your eyes so you can see. And catch this, those I love, I what? I rebuke. So Jesus is not coming to condemn, he's coming to rescue. And he says, those I love, I rebuke and I discipline. And catch this, he says, so be earnest and what? Repent. Repent. Who's he talking to? The church. He's not talking to culture. The big bad out there, the liberal left, the elites. The... 
He's not talking, he's not calling them to repent. He's calling us to repent. And he said, here I am. This is so interesting. I stand at the door and knock. You catch this? Jesus is on the outside of his own church. Knocking, I would love to come in. I'd love to be part of your church. I'd love to have fellowship with you. I'd love to have a relationship. And as of right now, you left me out in the cold. He said, if anyone hears my voice, and how many of us, we thought of this as a salvation verse, right, which works, but catch, it's not a salvation verse. Not in con- I'm not, you can use it that way, but that's not the context. He's telling the Christians, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, here's the promise. He's, catch it, here's the promise. I don't care if you're wretched. I don't care if you're pitiful. I don't care if you're blind or you're naked. That's, I'm, I can deal with that. But I do need you to open the door and let me come into your house. And he says, if you let me come in and deal with this, this stuff, then uh, I'll come in and I'll eat with him, which in the Middle East was a picture of fellowship, friendship, hospitality, and he with me. So did you catch that? That Jesus comes to his church and he says to repent. And I have to ask myself, what would Jesus say to the church in America? I would not be surprised at all if this was his word for us. You see, the reality is, as followers of Jesus, we have no right, I want you to listen very carefully, we have no right to pray for God to bless our nation. We have no right to ask him to protect and heal and lead and guide. We have no right to have him intervene in our elections or our direction or Supreme Court. We have absolutely no right if we're living in rebellion. The reality is, men and women, what our nation's experiencing right now is not random. It's judgment. Paul makes it very clear. You check out Romans 1. He says the wrath of God is being revealed right here and now against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Three times in that passage, he says, so God gave them over. You want the lie? Okay. You can have the lie. You get what you want, but you don't realize what you're asking for. What we're experiencing right now is a nation under judgment. And if we're going to stand in the gap for our nation and ask for God's mercy and forgiveness, we had better clean our own house first. Or we will get kicked out of that prayer session fast. In Isaiah 1, God says, I am sick of hearing your prayers. I'm Stop burning your incense. He says, repent, clean your lives up. And so when the church in America comes and asks for God's direction and blessing and protection of our land and we're living in disobedience, we are as much as part of the problem as a solution. We need to clean our own lives first. And we have so many great examples of this in Scripture. One of my favorites is in Nehemiah. And some of you know the account, but uh, let me just set it up. 586 B.C., the nation of Israel goes down for the last time because of hundreds of years of sin after many warnings. The, the city is destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed, completely destroyed. They're taken away a 1,000 miles by the superpower of the day of Babylon. 
539, Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, issues uh, an edict that the Jews can go back. About 70,000 go back. Most don't. 70,000 go back. A hundred years later, Jerusalem is still in ruins because they've not pursued the Lord. And so Nehemiah, 444 BC, now he's in, uh, he's in Persia. He's serving the king of Persia, a very high government official. He's got a great job, great perks, great 403B, 401B. Uh, and, um, and so he, he's there, and, and he gets the news back that about Jerusalem, a thousand miles away. Some, some travelers come back, and they tell him, it's like the, the city's burned down, the walls are burned down, the people are a mess. And he is so burdened for his nation, and he's so burdened for God's name that's being drugged through the muck by, by their disobedience. He begins to seek the Lord and fast and pray over three or four months. And I want you to see his prayer because it's a model for us. If we're going to pray for our nation, if we're going to stand in the gap, if repentance is a solution and we're the conduit of that, if you want winds of refreshing to come to this nation, if you want a repentance to come to this nation, it's going to come through the church. And so here's a model. Look what he says uh, from the New Living Translation. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. He's a faithful God. He said, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess, notice it came out, we have sinned. It's the reality. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, the regulations that you've given us for your servant Moses. Please remember what you told Moses hundreds of years ago, a thousand years ago, when you told Moses in, in Deuteronomy, that if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. God, you kept your word. He said, but you also said, if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, like now, I'll bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. And so he goes before God. And he says, God, this is a spiritual issue. It's not a political issue. We're not just overrun by China. That's not what happened. There's a spiritual issue. And he's a spiritual solution. God, I want to get on my knees and I want to seek you. And I want to fast. I want to pray. I ask you to forgive. And so he became a conduit of God's grace. And as a result of his humbling himself in a place of repentance, getting on his knees before God, God, here's my life. You know what? God not only heard his prayer, God chose him and began to direct him to be part of the solution. And he went back and he rebuilt those walls in an amazing way. And so here's the thing, is that if we want to be part of the solution, if we want to rebuild the walls of this nation, it starts with us. It starts with a deep and a radical repentance that stops saying, I belong to myself, and embraces the truth. You don't belong to yourself. As a human being, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the creator, one who created you. And as a follower of Jesus, you belong to the one who died for you. You don't belong to yourself. The essence of sin is the right to myself. And if you want to see this nation change, then the church of Jesus has to get on her knees and say, 
God, we are so sorry for being one foot in and one foot out, for listening when it's convenient, for following and obeying the things that we like, for ignoring the things that we don't, for living half-hearted lives, for disobeying, for living compromised lives. We have to repent and buy from Jesus some gold and some white clothes to cover our nakedness and some salve for our eyes. And this is a point where only you as an individual follower, you know your heart right now. You know if you're walking with God. You know if you're living a compromised life. But let me tell you something. If you are not sold out to Jesus, you are part of the problem of this country. Because you are meant to be the solution, and if you're not the solution, you're part of the problem. And this is what it goes back to. But the reality is, this is not the first crisis our country has faced. I think it might be one of the biggest, but it's not the first. And so there's hope. You know, we started the day with the story of this constitutional convention. Probably most of you don't know that story. Probably most of us take it for granted, our country, our nation, the freedoms that we enjoy. And we don't realize how tenuous that was in those early years. How this had never been done in the history of the world. What they were doing, the great experiment was called. All the world, the Western world was watching to seek, is it possible for a people to govern themselves? And most people believed it isn't, it isn't possible. And so they got together in that May of 1787. And like I said, after four or five weeks, these brightest minds in the world, political minds, were not able to overcome their difficulties, and it was looking hopeless. The fate of our nation was hanging in the balance. And then he got up. June 28, 1787. Oldest delegate, catch this, one of the most irreligious delegates. So old and weak that he often had to be carried to the convention in a chair. And he addressed the president, George Washington, and the rest of the delegates. And it's there in the back of your note sheet. And it's hard to, a little hard to follow, and it's long, but I think it's worth it because... We need to hear this. His name was Benjamin Franklin. And uh, look what he says. He says, a small progress that we've made after four or five weeks, Mr. President. He says, Mr. President, the small progress we've made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasonings with each other. We're working at this. Our different sentiments on almost every question. Several of the last producing as many no's as yeses. We were just split down the middle. Ismi thinks a melancholy, in other words, depressing proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem feel our own want, our lack of political wisdom. We're aware of it since we've been running about in search of it. We've gone back to ancient history for models of government. They were studying Greece and Rome. We've examined the different forms of those republics which now no longer exist. They didn't last. We've viewed modern states all around Europe. None find the constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, 
and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto, in other words, up to this point, once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights? It's a quote from James 1. To illuminate our understandings. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, oh, it's a revolutionary war, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in that struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And how have we forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. Remember, he's 81. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, Jesus said that, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, this is in Psalm 127, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Genesis 11. We will be divided by our partial local interests. We call them party interests. Our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall be a reproach and a byword to a future age. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter this unfortunate instance, despairing of establishing governments by human wisdom, leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. And by the end, men and women, that was a cultural turning point. And by the end of that 100 days, they had created the most incredible and respected political document in the history of the world. Something they could not agree on, something they were not making any progress once they sought the father of lights. And what we know as, as followers of Jesus is that the father of lights is not just the creator of the cosmos, and he is not simply the God who's instilled us with moral law, our conscience, but he is the redeemer God. What we know that Benjamin Franklin did not believe and did not did not acknowledge is that the creator of the cosmos became part of the cosmos to rescue that cosmos. So that when a man or woman comes to the creator, Jesus Christ, who died and rose for us, and we give him our lives, we can be forgiven and restored so that not only are we part of this creation, we can become part of the new creation. And so today, as we move on in the service, we're going to move to a time of communion right now.
Now, here's the thing. I, don't, I want you to listen very carefully because I know those words cause you to stop listening. <laughs> I want you to listen very carefully. What I'm about to say is very important. We have intentionally created opportunities for repentance over the next several days. This is an opportunity for repentance. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to give your life to Jesus, there is no better way to ask him into your life than to come and take communion with us and ask him, just say, Jesus, please come in my life and forgive me and teach me how to follow you. If you're here and a follower of Jesus, though, today, here's what I want to ask is, is there compromise in your life? You may believe in the creator, but are you worshiping the gods of this creation, of our culture? And if so, I want to call you to repentance. I want to speak the words of Jesus and say, hey, if you are wretched and if you're poor and if you're blind and if you're naked today, you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you are not following. And you know that. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about an area of your life that I want you to hear the words of Jesus. He wants to come in your life. I want you to hear his words. Those I love, I rebuke. And I want you to hear his words. I am knocking at the door. And if you open the door, it doesn't matter. Wretched, blind, naked. If you're ready to turn and repent, I want to come in and restore that relationship. No better way than to do that than to come and receive the elements, his body and blood, broken for us, surrender your life. Tomorrow, 24 hours of prayer. A big part of that will be an opportunity to repent for ourselves and on behalf of our nation. Encounter, part of that time, we'll be focused on repentance, our own lives, a part of our nation. Are you with me here? This is a weekend of repentance. I'm not kidding about this. If we are not right with him, we have no right to ask him to bless. We have no right to ask him to direct these elections. We have no right to ask him to bless our country. This country is in disobedience. What it deserves is what it's getting. What we need is we need to seek God for repentance so that God's blessing can return to this land. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to go in this time of communion right now. We're going to be worshiping together. If you've never been here before, around the, around the sides, we have some tables, elements in the front, at the back. If you're more than halfway back, going back might be faster. But as we worship, we just invite you to come and to receive and to pray. If you need to just talk with God or spend some time in repentance, kneel here. We're just family. We just want to go in the presence of God together. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're not ready to give your life to him, then I would encourage you not to take communion. It's a sign and symbol of a relationship. It's like wearing a ring. You don't want to wear it if it's not real. So I'd encourage you to maybe move with us to the sides, the edge, stay where you are, whatever's most comfortable. But wait until you have given your life to Jesus to participate at this meal because it represents this meal of communion. I will come in and eat with them. Amen? Let's stand and pray. God, as we come as your people, and we just acknowledge you are Lord and you are King, and we want to be surrendered to your leadership so that you can empower us and give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom 
and the foresight to know how to stand in this time of storm. We know that without you, we will not have endurance. We will not have the strength, the wisdom. It's impossible. We will fall away. We will not be faithful. We will not be true. And so, God, we want to get right with you now so that whatever comes, we're able to be a conduit. We're able to stand firm and tall, to be salt and light and be a force for healing and power in a culture that desperately needs it. And so we come, we thank you for your body and your blood broken and shed for us that we might be forgiven and restored, that you might come into our lives, we might have fellowship. We pray you'd meet us now in Jesus' name. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord, before I pray this, I just want to speak over us as a church. And I, I just want to say something that maybe it's obvious, but maybe you've missed, is that if the clouds of Mordor are coming, that you will not stand if you're compromised. There is no way you can be a light in the darkness. There's no way you can love your enemies and live a compromised life. There's no way that you can show courage and endurance and great bravery on your own. There is no way that you'll have the wisdom to know how to navigate the difficult waters ahead and the decisions that we're going to have to make, what to stand for and what not to stand for. These are things we cannot do on our own. We need the power of his spirit. We need to be fully surrendered vessels. I was reading this morning in Timothy where Paul said to Timothy, as bishop of Ephesus, Timothy, command and teach these things. So I am commanding. In the name of Jesus Christ, I am commanding that you cannot stand the storm that's coming if there's compromise in your heart. You have got to surrender to your true king. And in that, you will find life. In that, you will find strength. In that, you will find wisdom. In that, you'll find joy. But you will not stand the storm. You will, if you're wavering. And so I just challenge you, these next three days, if there's anything in your life, I'm not talking about morbid introspection, looking for something that's not there, I'm just saying, if the Holy Spirit is speaking, and you're honest before him, God, if there's anything in my life that's standing in the way, I beg, I plead, and I command in the name of Jesus that you bow the knee to your true king. He's knocking at the door. And so, God, we come in this weekend of repentance, a weekend of seeking, a weekend of asking, a weekend of praying for our nation, and God, we pray you would cause us to rise and shine like stars in the midst of a dark night by the power of your spirit. So we worship you now as we bring your offerings. We pray you would fill us in a fresh way with the power of your spirit for whatever is coming. And we pray it in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's, let's go. Stand back up again. This is... Uh, Getting to work out, man, you're going to be needing Advil tonight after all serve and then up and down.
May the Lord bless you. May his grace and peace be upon you. May you know how deeply loved you are. And may you know that it is no accident that you're here, that you were born for such a time as this. But also know this, the time to choose is now. Because my fear is that many of us who are here now will not be with us in the future. Because unless you decide now, when the time comes, you will not be ready. And so I'm charging you that you would respond to the love and the grace and the discipline and the rebuke of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's knocking at the door of your life, that you would not ignore him or turn up the TV, but that you would go to the door and fall to your knees and welcome him back and say, Lord, I know I am not up to the the storm that's coming, but I know you are. And Christ in me is the hope of glory. So if you will heal and if you'll restore and if you'll strengthen and if you'll empower, that I will stand with you. And together we will shine like lights in a dark world. That those who are out in that darkness, an increasingly dark world, it's going to get ugly. There are going to be people looking for hope. Because I'm telling you, the worldview, worldview of materialism is empty to its core. And though it may please at the beginning because it casts off all restraints, in the end, it leaves you hungry and thirsty and poor and naked. And we want to be there to throw open those doors wide and say, welcome. We've been waiting for you. Amen? God bless you guys. Have a great weekend.